0: Well, I am so delighted to be with you today. And it's uh, a joy to serve alongside Dr. Hamilton at Southern Seminary. And I'm grateful for his kind invitation to come and speak to you. And we are uh, I'm going to speak on 2 Samuel 23, uh, verses 8 to 39. Uh, this is the last Sunday of 2019 and when we meet again it will be uh, 2020. And uh, so we want to kind of uh, take a look towards the future to see what the future might hold. Now if I was if I was an an expert on culture and society I could give a really cool introduction on the uncertainties that we face in 2020. I, I don't, maybe we can just skip that part, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I think many of you realize that there are uncertainties in 2020. We've, we've ended this year with the impeachment of the president, we have a, a major election next year, and uh, all around the world there are many uncertainties So uh, just off the top of my head I can think of some of our students from Southern Seminary who are serving in China and uh, things are very difficult in China. So you know that the Chinese government has facial software recognition and They keep track of people, everyone who goes into a place of worship and they look, and and the software will read the emotions on your face. So they know, they they, they think they know what you're thinking. And uh, it costs something to be a Christian in a place like that. And uh, I'm not a prophet, but I'm going to tell you something. For 2020 it's going to cost you something to be a Christian in 2020 and uh, I want to speak today on the danger of being half-hearted this passage 2nd Samuel 23 belongs to the epilogue of Samuel the narrator is almost finished reporting a story which climaxes in the deeds and life of King David. At the close of a long reign of 40 years, the narrator gives us a list of the heroes of this time and describes a few of their exploits, their achievements in battle for the sake of David's kingdom and God's rule through David. We must ask first how and where 2 Samuel 23 fits into the plot structure of the larger story. The Bible begins by revealing to us a creator God who made our universe, our world. We know that at the beginning everything was good and proper, God made humans to be rulers and stewards of his world. The first humans, however, decided to go their own way and believed they could create the good life independently of God. This led to chaos, destruction, and death. God made a new start with Noah and his family, but this too ended up in chaos and the confusion of Babel. Finally, God made his last new start by choosing a man called Abraham planning that his family should be the means of turning things around. His family would display to the rest of the world what it would mean to have a right relationship to the Creator God, how to treat each other in a truly human and just way, and also how to be good stewards of the Earth's resources. When Abraham's family became a great nation, God made an agreement or covenant with them at Sinai to achieve his plan. This covenant is called the Torah, a word which means instruction. It was his instruction to demonstrate to the world a right relationship to God and truly human ways of treating each other. The period following this, however, shows Israel, the people of God, failing miserably to be a blessing to the nations, And everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. A bit like driving in Kentucky, the guidelines seemed to be in chaos and confusion. (laughs) So God gave them a king to help administer and enforce the instruction and keep them on track in the covenant the people had made with God. The first king did not fulfill this role, so now God brought the man David into the picture He was anointed king, but he had to wait a long, long time waiting for God to put him on the throne and use him to establish God's kingdom and rule in Israel and in the world. Now, great men rarely rise to leadership and stand by themselves. Around a great man are other great men, or we could say... uh, beside a great man stands a great woman now once again you know that i'm not highly skilled in sports but i i think of uh, people like wayne gretzky he's a a hockey player Uh, i wonder if any of you remember michael jordan or mark mcguire perhaps these are from a former generation if i wanted to get excited i would talk about johnny bauer who was was a hockey player from 60 years ago Uh, but uh, all you have to do is fill in the blanks by thinking of your favorite uh, sports hero Uh, naturally coming from canada my examples are from hockey where would a captain in hockey like wayne gretzky be Without great players, they are to pass the puck so he could score. For every goal there is an assist. In 2 Samuel 23, 8 to 39, we have a list of heroes from David's kingdom. It is one of two texts in the epilogue to Samuel. So the epilogue to Samuel is chapters 21 to 24, and it consists of six sections. arranged A, B, C, C, B, A. So the first and last sections give us stories of guilt and suffering. The, The second and fifth sections give us a list of David's heroes. And the third and fourth sections in the middle give us two songs, a long song and a short song. So, We're looking at one of the passages that gives us a list of David's mighty men, his macho dudes in the the army, and the other passage is chapter 21, 15, 2 Samuel 21, 15 to 22. Three of the men who are just listed as names in our texts have stories told about them in 2 Samuel 21, and we have further reason to see why they are included in this list. By way of overview, there are many difficulties in interpreting this text. Some of the difficulties are due to mistakes made by scribes who copied the text down through the centuries of time from 1000 BC, the time of David, to 1080, the time of our best manuscripts of the Hebrew text. One problem is caused by the similarity of the word three, the word thirty, and there's a special word for officer. It's the word shalish, and it's very much like the word for three and the word for thirty. I'll just take a moment to explain this. So, uh, if you become an expert in uh, ancient culture, so remember this. When when I when my son was In his early teenager years he said dad he said you don't know anything about culture and I said yes I do culture 3000 years ago (laughs) so Egypt only had two man chariots but the Hittites the Israelites and the Assyrians had three-man chariots you know we shouldn't stop and sneeze at this because if you go if you go online you, will see, you can see a one-hour video produced by the BBC where they actually reconstructed uh, an Egyptian chariot. And if you have a bunch of chariots coming in like this and each guy taking a shot and turning around and go back, they can pull off almost as many rounds per second as uh, one of those um, Sikorsky Seahawk helicopters with the... Uh, Big machine guns that they have in them. So don't think that our culture is the best and the greatest Well as I said the Hittites the Israelites and the Assyrians had three-man chariots because there was the driver and then there was a soldier and then there was a a third guy in the chariot and he had the shield and carried the weapons and so uh, the third guy in the chariot came to be a name of a very important officer in the army, kind of like what we call, uh, what would be a, 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 a some, something like that today. In the, in the Vietnam War, it would be the Green Berets. Today, it would be a Navy Seal, or if you're a uh, first Anglico in the U.S. Marines, so a special ops, a special ops person, uh, one of the elite military people and so this word these three words are the same and they get confused <clears throat> there is a parallel text in first chronicles which helps us uncover some of the mistakes made in the transmission of the text for example verses 8 to 12 seem to list only two heroes whereas 1 chronicles 11 lists three heroes in the same spot in the text and this is due to an omission caused by having two identical words in the text and the eye of the scribe skips from one word to the next word and omits some text in between and so fortunately because we have not only 2 samuel 23 but also 1 chronicles 11 we can f- find solutions fi- find solutions to these problems and i have been working on these for 40 years and i think i'm finished all of the textual problems here all right the the text has a very simple outline uh this is a uh, 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 this is uh i had somewhere uh so we have we have in different parts of the country hall of fame so there's one in nashville isn't there and there's one in, there's one in ohio and in toronto we have the hockey hall of fame that's one i know about uh <clears throat> Where we have a, we have our heroes on display, and in this chapter we have first of all the big three, and then we have the big thirty, and in between the big three and the big thirty is our our two paragraphs, an unnamed trio, a na- an unnamed trio who uh, went to get water from the well at Bethlehem for David, and two. Two uh, outstanding generals, two outstanding generals in the army, Uh, they they weren't as important as the big three, but they were more important than the big 30. So that's why they come in between. All right. So it's quite a list, and it ends with Uriah the Hittite, who was loyal to David when David betrayed him. This is a very interesting list. So we're going to start, first of all, by looking at the big three. And we see that the first person is a man by the name of Yeshbaal the Hakmonite. So Yeshbaal belonged to the elite core of the elite. Um, He was like a a green beret or a navy seal. He was a one-man army. Simon and Garfunkel used to sing of a a one-man poet, a poet and a one-man band. This was a one-man army. He was swinging his battle axe against 800 at one time. What an astonishing feat. Now notice what it says next. After him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite. Eliezer was a man like Yeshbaal, but not quite as great. Did you notice the word after him? So this means, this doesn't mean after in space or after in time. It means after in rank. So we have a list of the heroes. And it would, they were wonderfully read today. How many have ever how many uh, how many? I've never heard this passage read in, in, in church before, okay. Now, how many thought it was boring? You, you, can, you can be honest. but if, but if you went, if you went to a schoolyard, these children in the schoolyard would be giving the names of all the people on all the baseball teams and they would know all the heroes and they would have their cards and they would know their ranks. You see that? So we don't, we don't mind the children doing that, but sometimes we mind, you know, reading a list of names like this. Well, when you rank, when you rank heroes, you have the big 30 and there's Then after that, there's the big three. And even in the big three, there's a number one. There's a number two, and there's a number three. And that's why it says in verse 11, after him, in verse 9, after him was Eliezer, and after him was Shammah. So there was a big three, and in the big three, there's a number one, there's a number two, and there's a number three. The third guy is a guy by the name of Shammah, the son of Agay, the Harorite. And we have a little story in verses 11 and 12. And this, this story has a very interesting literary structure, which is difficult to, to display uh, without an overhead. But the sentences in the middle of the paragraph alternate between the Philistines and the circumstances in Israel. So there's a sentence about the Philistines and then a sentence about Israel and a sentence about the Philistines and a sentence about Israel. But the paragraph begins with the details about the hero and ends with the Lord giving a great victory. So the hero and the Lord form a ring of allies around the turmoil of battle. So the the literary structure gives us a picture of what God is doing. I want you to notice that this event occurs in a place called Lehi. There is a bit of of a problem in the text. Some some translations read the word as band, but good evidence exists that the word should be read as Lehi. This is the name of a place found only one other time in Scripture. It is the place where Samson killed a thousand of the Philistines using the jawbone of a donkey. And the phrase, the Lord brought about a great victory, are exactly Samson's own words in Judges 15, verse 18. So the author, as the author tells us this story in uh, 2 Samuel 23, he's telling you another Samson is here. And God is the one who gives the victory. Shammah, I want you to think about this for a moment. Shamma put his life on the line for a field of lentils. Did you notice that? There was a, there was a field there, a plot of ground, and it, uh, it was full of lentils. Now, I have to sort of tell you a little bit about lentils. Uh, we just go down to the grocery store and we buy bread bread that is made out of wheat but in the Middle Ages only the rich people had bread made out of wheat. There are ma- As you know, there are many different kinds of grain so there's wheat and there's oats and there's barley and there's corn and there's uh, many different kinds of grains. There's rye. You can, you can have bread made out of rye That's sort of like uh, you go to Jason's Deli or something and and get rye bread. But back in the Middle Ages, grains like rye didn't have as much nourishment in them as bread made out of wheat. Now today, everybody eats bread made out of wheat, so everybody has the best. Well, when you list all of these different grains... The one that comes at the bottom is lentils. Lentils, in case you haven't realized it, maybe you go and have these at a restaurant, but lentils are the food of the poor, the people who can't afford wheat. So here's an interesting story. Why would a guy give his life for a field of lentils? Well, this man had a theological understanding of the land. He was conscious of the Exodus. He was conscious of the fact that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. He was conscious of the fact that God had brought them out, that God had delivered them, that God had rescued them. He was conscious of the fact that God had brought them into the land of Canaan, that God had given them the land. And if you look at, here's another here's another set of chapters that you will never hear read in the church, and that's Joshua 16 through 19, where it gives verse by verse of how the land was divided by lots. Why, why is that important? Because everyone was either a farmer or a shepherd, and, you, and you, if you, you don't make any money if you're a farmer or a shepherd and you don't have land. And so here's a guy who recognized... That this was this land was given to them by the Lord, and had to be passed down in the in the tribes according to the clans, and could not be bought or sold. You remember remember King Ahab, who saw this vineyard that was owned by a guy called Naboth. Remember that, and uh, he. He he asked Naboth to sell him the vineyard, and Naboth said no. Why? Because Naboth was just like this guy, Shammah. He understood that the land had been given them by the Lord and had to be preserved within within the clans. Ahab went home and pouted, and because he wasn't married to an Israelite, he was married to a Phoenician woman called Jezebel, and she said, I'll get it for you. So... Here's a guy who had a completely different perspective on life. This isn't just a field of worthless lentils. It's part of what God has given to Israel and I'm going to give my life for the kingdom. Then we have, so we have the story of the big three. Uh, we have uh, the Eleazar, Eliezer and Shammah. Then we have, coming next, the story of the trio, three unnamed warriors. Some assume that this story of three warriors refers to the big three. This is not necessarily so. It is more likely that they are a trio of warriors who belong to the big 30 and who were famous and known not as individuals but as a group. This is a, this is a, this is extremely important and instructive. So you may say to yourself, "Well, n- in the Church of Jesus Christ, nobody is ever going to remember me." You know, they they may re- remember some great preacher or some great scholar or somebody like Augustine. We have children called Augustine here today. So, uh, but they'll never remember me. Well, not everybody is remembered individually. Some people are remembered as a group. These people were 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 not known for what they did individually, but for what they did as a group. You may be known for what you do in a group, not like the... Well, when my wife was growing up in church, they, they had a ladies' missionary society, and they used to knit bandages for lepers in Africa. So. They're not known. We don't know the names of the ladies who did the knitting, but we know the name, the group who, who did that. David is full of longing. His desire for a drink, however, is not ordinary. The, nar- the narrator uses direct speech to focus on the extraordinary nature of his thirst. David is thinking of the cistern at the gate of his birthplace and cannot tear himself away from the idea. All of us know that the water it tastes differently in different places. And David remembers the taste of the water from his hometown. He is longing for the living water from the true spring. His men have grasped this for now they are going to undertake something no ordinary mortal would dare to do. They are once again to pass through enemy lines and draw water from under the noses of yet more enemies. The devotion of David's men is seen in fulfilling merely a nostalgic wish and putting their lives on the line to do so. David, shocked by this, pours it out before Yahweh as a drink offering, as the blood of the men. This demonstrates not ingratitude but a commitment in the face of his men's devotion not to put their lives at risk recklessly and to transfer their costly gift to Yahweh. The three men remain anonymous. In this way, the episode exemplifies the relationship between David and all his heroes. It typifies the attitude of all of them. It directs a spotlight on their courage, devotion, and willingness to give their lives for his kingdom. Then we have next two famous warriors. Two famous warriors who were incredible macho dudes. They didn't make it into the big three, but they were more important than the big 30. We have two guys, Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah. When David was pursued so relentlessly by Saul and was cornered, he dared to go down into the camp of Saul. The only one who dared to go along with David was Abishai. So that's at the beginning of David's reign. At the end of David's reign, when his son Absalom revolted, Abishai was right there to stand up for the king against the curses of Shimei. Abishai was also the leader entrusted to deal with a troublemaker named Sheba. And in 2 Samuel 21, we read of David facing a grisly giant, descended from the Rapha, who had a bronze spearhead weighing 300 shekels. David almost lost his life, had not Abishai the hero stepped in to rescue him and killed the giant. So we have an incredible warrior, and then we have another incredible warrior, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada from Kabzael. And he has three daring exploits. He killed the two sons of Ariel, of Moab. So these were two of uh, Moab's greatest warriors. He went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. We don't know if it was an Asian lion or an African lion, but just for your information, Israel is the land bridge between Africa and Asia, so it could have been an African lion or an Asian lion. In any case, it was dangerous. And he went against an Egyptian man who was a fierce-looking opponent, and all he had in his hand was a club, and he went down against the guy, and sort of like in the movie Troy, where you have Brad Pitt, he jumped up and grabbed the spear out of his hand and killed his enemy. What this author doesn't tell you that you learn in 1 Chronicles 27 is that Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a priest. In fact, he was the high priest. So you can do two jobs at once. Don't just say, well, I'm the high priest, you know, I have to stay home and look after the tabernacle. Finally, we have a list of the 30 heroes of David's battles. You will be glad to hear that I do not plan to describe in detail what is or is not known of each and every one of David's men in in his Hall of Fame. Although in the playground or schoolyard, children and teenagers expect their audiences to be patient while they detail even longer lists of their sports heroes. Generally, each person has a name and an adjective which either gives the family or clan from which he comes or the name of the town or village from which they hail." You know, it's like when you drive up uh, I-69, you're going from Indianapolis to Fort Wayne, and you, you see this sign, James Dean was, comes from this town. So, uh, each person is listed, and we find the the clan that they come from the tribe that they come from or the town that they come from most of the men came from small towns and villages in the territory of judah which makes sense since david became king of judah first and only later on became king over all the tribes of israel nonetheless there are a few men from the territory of benjamin and ephraim Hiddai from the wadis of gaash and even an Ammonite and a Hittite. So this is a motley crew. This, there is a lot of local color and detail in this list. For example, for example, in verses 32 and 33, Jonathan, the son of Shammah, the Hararite, is probably the son of the same Shammah who is one of the big three. So that's kind of cool. You're in the big three and your son is in the big 30. In verse 34, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite, is, according to 2 Samuel 11.3, the father of Bathsheba. The treachery of Ahithophel in the coup of Absalom was probably motivated by David's affair with his granddaughter. The exploits of Elchanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, and Sabakai the Hushethite are recorded in 2 Samuel 21. Now finally... I want to speak about the people who are not mentioned in this list. That's exactly right. Did you notice the people who are not mentioned in this list? Why is Joab not listed in David's Hall of Fame? Three times we have his brothers, right? Uh, Abishai, the brother of Joab, Asahel, the brother of Joab, and we even have his armor-bearer. So three times Joab's name comes up in this list, but he's not in the list. He was, des- he was certainly not half-hearted. He was desperately loyal to David and his kingdom, but he did not follow God's standards of right and wrong in establishing the kingdom and rule of David. He was ruthless and vindictive, and he used his role to avenge personal wrongs. These were not the people who see something starting up that is good and successful and want to be a part of the success. So it's not like a group of investors going to see what's the new big tech giant that's going to rise, and let's put our money into that and see if we can make a lot of money. These are the people who believed in David's kingdom during the long years when David had been promised the kingdom but had to live as an outlaw pursued by Saul. This, these men were the men in, they, they were the, the, the band of 200, the band of 400, the band of 600, the ragtag lot that ran around the Judean desert. Believing in David's kingdom when there was nothing to show for it. And we are living in a certain... We are, li- we are living in a similar time here in 2020, coming up next week. The last of the family line of David is Jesus of Nazareth. Since he was raised to the power of an endless life, By his resurrection from the dead, he will rule forever. His kingdom has been inaugurated, but not consummated. These are the days when it does not really look like he is king, or that his kingdom is the only one that will last. In fact, many people do not even recognize that he has a kingdom. The Christian church does not look like a success story at all. if you 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 may you can look at your church but then come and look at my church it's not a success story when all love of power is destroyed forever and all the kingdoms of this world become dust and the only kingdom which remains and rules is that of Jesus Christ will you be in the hall of heroes because you were in at the beginning not as an interested onlooker or participant who is trying to put insurance on several things with your eggs all in different baskets, but as one who gave 100%, who was nothing less than wholehearted. We have, uh, we're going to put up a picture here. This is Microsoft in 1978. I'm older than many of you, and I, I was alive in 1978. I was almost finished my master's degree. So I guess I was 24 or so. I could have invested in this group. I'll tell you the truth, to me they look like a bunch of hippies. <laughs> and yes, I did live through the hippie era, and I was almost old enough to go to Woodstock. Should I have invested? Just think how rich I would be today, right? But this is your chance. This is your chance. This is what the Church of Jesus Christ looks like to the world. And 2020, the danger of being half-hearted, you have to put 100% in. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the instruction that comes to us. We see that our situation is exactly like that of 2 Samuel 23. We are the ones who believe in the coming kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And yet that kingdom has not, has been inaugurated but not consummated. And there is a day coming when every knee will bow. Uh, the, the current president of China, the leaders of Google, everyone will fall before him. And we have the chance right now to be the ones who give our complete devotion to the establishing of his kingdom and his righteousness and his rule. Strengthen each one of us today in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Let's stand together.